Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me via Zoom from his home in Oregon, is my new friend, Gene Grant. Welcome to the podcast, Gene. Thank you. Glad to be here. Gene and I have been communicating for a couple months. He reached out to me like many of my guests, too. He didn't ask to be on the podcast. That was my idea. Um, but he is going to share his story as an active Latter-day Saint. He's nearly 70 years old, but he's a liberal Latter-day Saint, and he's been navigating being a liberal, which is a minor- minority political position in our church for about five decades. And um, the best I can see on demographics is more of our millennials and Gen Zs, uh, maybe 50-50% are voting liberal or would be classified as liberal or at least not conservative. And this podcast is supportive of liberals and conservatives, but often um, liberal voices are a little muted in a, pol- in a religion that's perhaps dominantly politically conservative. Our joint hope is that maybe what Gene shares will be helpful to younger liberal Latter-day Saints wondering how to navigate being committed Latter-day Saint and holding liberal views. Um, many of you may be liberal. Our also hope is that if you're a conservative Latter-day Saint, that you will have a chance to hear from a liberal Latter-day Saint and help sort of heal our divide and bring us closer together and support each other. I love Elder Cook's comment of, of unity and diversity. And I used to at one point think that religion was just an extension of my own political party, but it's a higher law. It's a holier law where we come together. And I think good ship Zion needs to have liberals and conservatives. This is podcast is a clear attempt to bring a liberal's voice forward um, to talk about his journey. Is that okay for an introduction, Gene? Yeah, that's great. So I'll turn it over to my friend Gene to share his story. Okay, well, I'll uh, continue the introduction a little bit. I'm a retired real estate attorney. Uh, born in the Covenant, raised in the church in Idaho and Oregon, and I graduated from early morning seminary in the institute program at the University of Oregon. I've been active in the church my entire life without interruption, and I've paid my tithing and held a temple recommend my entire life. I've served an honorable full-time mission in Pennsylvania, and I have successfully uh, at least thus far, a successful temple marriage resulting in four children and seven grandchildren. I regularly attend the temple, uh, have attended the temple all my life. In the last few years, I've been an ordinance worker in the Portland Temple. Uh, I've served in many ward and stake callings, and a few years ago, my wife and I served a senior mission for the church in the Pacific area. Most relevant to this podcast is that I am politically and religiously more liberal than most uh, church members. So I want to start off kind of explaining my definition of the church liberal viewpoint. A good example of the church's liberal viewpoint is a former BYU history professor, Richard Paul, who published an article in the journal Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought in 1967 when I was only a teenager. And uh, He described conservatives as church members who see the gospel as clear and exact and, quote, hold to the iron rod, close quote, and liberal church members as those who follow the guidance of the church as a Leahona compass to lead them through a more unclear and ambiguous life. Paul 
was criticized for his article over the pulpit in general conference by then Apostle Harold B. Lee in 1971, who said that, quote, a liberal in the church is merely one who does not have a testimony, close quote. Elder Lee's stereotyping of church liberals seems abusive to me and inconsistent with James chapter three. It's not my role to tell church leaders uh, how to avoid uh, such abuse and, and uh, how to support the abuse. My, my, I'm speaking, as you said, in hopes that constructive criticism will um, contribute to greater efforts to avoid this kind of abuse that's occurred so often in the past. Um, my experience has been that many conservative church leaders continue to have elderly's attitude that liberals are a continuing problem and, that, and deserve to be marginalized, if not excluded, because of their lack of faith. Um, let me also digress here to address listeners who are thinking that I'm just a typical, typical liberal snowflake who's <laughs> unable to take criticism. Uh, I'm a retired lawyer. I practiced nearly 40 years. I'm used to the adversarial intensity of law practice, as well as having been uh, the mayor of my city for eight years after serving seven intense years on the planning commission. I am above average in experience in the rough and tumble of political, legal, and religious conflicts. The abuse of my local leaders was, however, the most appalling and wounding of any abuse I've experienced precisely due to my devotion to the church. Wow. Often such abuse was passive aggressive. Local leaders often expressed love and friendship, but then would treat me like an enemy in many ways. So um, I want to talk about general authorities, a couple more general authorities that are examples of the reaction against the liberalism that grew in the church in the first half of the 20th century. The 60s were a time of rapidly increasing liberalism that spurred a fundamentalist reaction in the 70s and 80s. Elder Ezra Taft Benson and Boyd K. Packer are prime examples of this reaction. Um, in my high school years during the 60s, the extent of my attraction to the counterculture was enjoying folk music. <laughs> um, educated in Eugene, Oregon, I began the process of understanding and respecting the liberal perspective. I disagreed with Elder Benson's extreme political views, particularly his past support for the John Birch Society and Joseph McCarthy, and in 1968, his support of George Wallace, the Vietnam War, and opposition to Martin Luther King, and his uh, uh, opposition to the anti-war movement. While in Salt Lake City for the All-Church Dance Festival in 1970, I talked to Elder James A. Colmore about my concerns, and he was very sympathetic and responded that the general authorities were working hard to solve this problem. He said the first counselor, Hubie Brown, had talked to Elder Benson very recently and forcefully, and that they reached an agreement. And he challenged me to keep watching general conference and see that this preaching of extremist politics over the church pulpit would end. I did that, and I was pleased to see Elder Colomar was correct. The other example is Boyd K. Packer. Um, he's the general authority that twice toured the Pennsylvania Mission when I served there in 72 through 74. 
I was positively impressed by his remarks generally uh, during those mission tours. Some things he got wrong, however. Uh, for example, he stated that Harold B. Lee was going to usher us into the millennium. After my mission, Elder Packer gave a widely reported talk on May 18, 1993, to church leaders, stating that intellectuals, feminists, and homosexuals were the church's greatest internal challenges, which I found troubling considering myself an intellectual of sorts. In the October 1984 conference, General Conference, Elder Packer publicly rejected the theory of evolution. Together with then Elder Ezra Taft Benson, Elder Packer seemed to be leading the fundamentalist reaction against church liberals. Now, by fundamentalist, I want to be clear, I'm not referring to the polygamous, um, you know, Mormon fundamentalist polygamous sects. I mean a literal interpretation of the scriptures, rejecting any intellectual knowledge apparently in conflict with conservative religion typical of Protestant evangelical churches. Unfortunately, many former church members and leaders, including President Benson and Elder Packer, among others, were fundamentalists in their reaction to the perceived threat of modern science as religion's replacement. While those who made this mistake were sincerely trying to protect religious faith from being destroyed by modern intellectual knowledge, the retreat to fundamentalism required a willful ignorance and science denial that became increasingly unacceptable, unacceptable to younger generations, like myself when I was a teenager. Wow. Um, so that, you know, I was very pleased, you know, recently to read that President Nelson is not a fundamentalist like these past leaders. Speaking of the COVID vaccine, he made the statement in 2020 that he is a man of both religious faith and of science. And of course, he was the famous heart surgeon, highly educated with scientific medical knowledge. Uh, similarly, Stephen Pett, BYU biologist professor, writes about and teaches evolution at BYU. He's devoutly religious and he does not see any contradiction or reconcilable, irreconcilable conflict between his biological knowledge and his religious knowledge. Neither of these leaders see any need to choose between the two or retreat to religious fundamentalism and denial of science in order to protect their faith. Upon dedicating the, the BYU Life Sciences building where Professor Peck teaches, on April 9th, 2015, President Nelson said, quote, there is no conflict between science and religion. Conflict only arises from an incomplete knowledge of either science or religion or both. This university is committed to search for truth and teach the truth, quote, close quote, said Elder Nelson, and quote, all truth is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether truth comes from a scientific laboratory or by revelation from the Lord. It is compatible. They, they both work hard to reconcile their secular and spiritual knowledge into one great body of consistent truth. They do not ignore scientific truth that some might feel conflicts with religious truths. Unfortunately, my experience has been that despite these more liberal views of our current first presidency and many general authorities, the church members and local leaders are still predominantly and extremely conservative in the USA. And I believe this is true for what I have uh, listed about 15 reasons for how we've 
why we have such persistent and extreme conservatism in the church today. So I'll just quickly go through those. First of all, A, liberal Republicans waged war on polygamy in the second half of the 19th century, alienating church members and leaders and driving them into the arms of sympathetic Southern states' rights Democrats. B, Brigham Young and most members identified with the Southerners during the Civil War and after the Civil War because liberal Republicans were, in their words, words, quote, ending slavery and polygamy, the twin relics of barbarism. C, a sizable percentage of the early church converts were Southerners, many of whom became influential church leaders in the Great Basin. They brought their conservative political views with them to Utah. D, church leaders adopted and espoused racial and political views of these extremist Southerners who created the racist Jim Crow segregation system. E, communism was and remains officially atheistic. It rationalizes tyranny and covers up systemic corruption. Liberals have been smeared by political extremists, including Ezra Taft Benson, as being communist or sympathetic to communism. Because of the reputational, gee, this is G, because of the reputational damage from practicing polygamy and other unique religious doctrines and practices, church leaders and members were striving to overcome widespread and strong anti-Mormon prejudice. Ironically, the Republican Party supported the admission of Senator Reed Smoot to the U.S. Senate and Utah to statehood in the early 20th century after winning the 19th century battle against polygamy. Smoot typified the Republican conservatism of 20th century church leaders. The church's means of acceptance in the 20th century was assimilation into the American mainstream, including Republican political conservatism. Just a second, I need to close the door here. I've got a, a landscaper out there running landscape equipment. I don't know if you can hear that. We didn't that's hear sorry. it, but sometimes we get background music, so that's fine. Yeah, okay. Well, back to my list. So um, the H, liberals were perceived as anti-clerical believers in scientism and secular humanism. I, the Great Basin region, was predominantly rural, and even today it's predominantly a mixture of rural and low-density semi-rural suburban development. Cities are predominantly more liberal politically versus predominantly conservative rural and semi-rural suburbs. This conservative conservatism is partly due to the higher education in cities and lower education in rural areas. J, city residents need more government services because they live in densely populated and complex environments, whereas low-density rural uh, residents are more libertarian because they need less government services. K, strongly authoritarian church leaders make members susceptible to uncritically accept political propaganda and disinformation of conservative extremists. Thinking independently and critically, while a necessary means to avoid such manipulation is resisted by these strongly authoritarian and fundamentalist church leaders, such as Ezra Taft Benson and his supporters today. J. Edgar Hoover and other 20th century conservative extremists smeared the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War opposition as being communist front organizations intended to destroy the U.S. M. 
liberals were associated with the sexual revolution of the 60s, rejecting traditional religious moral values. And liberals were associated with the population control advocates of the 1960s environmental movement. And last but not least, liberals were associated with the feminist movement and their advocacy of birth control and abortion, which conservative leaders viewed as destructive of families. So I think in light of all those, um, it's not surprising that the church members are today predominantly still uh, extremely conservative. And that conservatism has actually, in my experience, become more extreme and pronounced as the increasing national political polarization during the last few decades. It's, it's getting worse. Our church has become more polarized and divided with respect to religious and political views, which so often have overlapped. And thanks to celebrities like Glenn Beck, Benson's extremist politics of the John Birch Society have enjoyed a resurgence rather than fading into obscurity. And most importantly, local church leadership reflects this increasingly extreme conservatism. Uh, resulting conflicts and divisions are widespread. And general conference talks recently by Elder Oaks and church news articles have been addressing this problem and encouraging improvement precisely because political extremism in the church is prevalent and an entrenched problem that is recently getting worse. So I want to talk about entrenched conservative leadership. What's maddening to liberals like me is that they really have no way to effectively avoid the calling of extremist conservatives as local church leaders. The church is an authoritarian organization that appoints its new local leaders based on the recommendation of the existing local leaders. Liberals are often given marginal callings, if any calling at all, and they're rarely, if ever, going to be in the group called upon to make recommendations for who's to be called as a new state president. They're also typically not going to be in the state presidency and on the high council to discuss who should be considered as a new bishop. Conservative leaders thus perpetuate their priesthood control by recommendations for and appointments of their replacements. While ideally general authorities will make inspired callings, I have found it disappointing, to say the least, to see extremely conservative and abusive leadership perpetuated in this manner without interruption over 30 years in my previous state where I raised my children. Speaking of children, the abuse of which I speak affects them adversely as well as old people like me. I've seen the disillusionment resulting from the abuse that is obvious to young people who are much more inclined to be liberal and leave the church than old people like me. And whether young people are observing misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, or anti-intellectual fundamentalism, the result is too often the same. The quality of leadership has been a major factor in the loss of faith for many young people, including my own children and grandchildren. And general authorities have even spoken of this loss as being on the same scale, if not worse, than the disaffection that occurred in Kirtland, Ohio in 1837-38. So 
when an, when another church member is a political extremist, the problem is relatively minor because the abuse is limited to uncharitable communications and can that can be ignored and often easily avoided. Even in a ward, one can pick and choose who you socialize and communicate with. Every ward has members with disagreeable views that must be tolerated when they're stated over the pulpit or in classes. The bigger problem, however, is when such extremists are clothed with authority of local leadership callings that put them in a position to more seriously abuse members perceived of being too liberal. It's it's not easy to ignore that kind of extremism. And uh, when it's espoused over the pulpit by leaders and it becomes a real crisis if the leader seeks to revoke your temple recommend or otherwise attack a liberal church member directly. I hasten to add that all leaders are sincerely trying to defend the faith and maintain legitimate boundaries for church membership. Um, I have been accused, however, by local leaders of being an apostate who should be killed to cleanse the church merely because I openly criticized President Benson's political extremism and said in a church class that Prop 8 the Prop 8 gay marriage campaign by the church in California was a mistake. In both instances, I was accused of speaking evil of the Lord's anointed and then was marginalized by being released from callings. Wow. Yeah, it was traumatic. So let's talk a little about speaking evil of the Lord's anointed. Over the last couple of decades in public and private church settings, local church leaders repeatedly told me that I should never criticize church leaders. But Dieter Uchtdorf acknowledged in October 2013 General Conference that church members and leaders have made mistakes because they too are fallible. And as a Dallin Oaks stated in 2016, the church leaders are now trying to trying hard to be more transparent about church history rather than covering up mistakes in a counterproductive effort to protect religious faith. My local leaders seem completely oblivious to this distinction between open opposition to the church and constructive criticism of past mistakes. Elder Dallin Oaks' 87 talk about criticism was mistakenly relied upon by my local leaders, even though Oaks acknowledged that members may disagree with leaders and may constructively criticize them if they do not engage in personal attacks intended to undermine or demonize the leaders. I believe that constructive criticism is not only permissible, but it's a religious duty. Elder Oaks spoke on criticism of church leaders well prior to the internet age, and he said that constructive criticism should be communicated privately to the appropriate leaders. The idiom is praise in public and criticizing private, to which I subscribe, generally speaking. Now, while that's an important principle of private relationships, however, the scriptures are replete with open and constructive criticism of church leaders rather than being hagiographic. Hagiography is defined as biography that idolizes the subject. We do not believe in idol worship. In theory, but in practice, many, if not most, leaders and members engage in hagiography still. 
today. The only way any history avoids becoming hagiography is by balancing praise with constructive criticism. Open constructive criticism of leaders is at times necessary to avoid um, not only abuse and dishonesty, but real tragedies. Richard Turley and Ronald Walker concluded that a more a major moral of the 1857 Mountain Meadows Massacre was that the church members should have more openly criticized and refused to follow their church leaders in committing a murderous atrocity. And the tragedy of the Willie and Martin Hancock companies could have been avoided but for fundamentalist leaders, including an apostle, ignoring the constructive criticism of a more liberal member, Levi Savage, who warned that if they left in August, they would likely die in snowstorms on the plains. In this information age, hagiography is simply untenable dishonesty. Talks by church members, including President Hinckley, President Faust, and Elder Ashton about honesty explicitly have taken the position that there's no exception to the duty to be honest, including none for white lies, omissions, or even wartime secrecy and deception. St. Augustine famously said that lying while teaching religion is the most unforgivable, which makes sense because the betrayal and loss of faith when religious lying is discovered. The conservative fundamentalist leader is engaging in dishonesty and demanding dishonesty from members in a misguided attempt to defend the faith. Now, church leader abuse of liberals is in essence another form of domestic abuse. The church is an extended family. We talk about our ward family and that our association with ward members is often closer than with our own children or parents who may, you know, live outside of our ward. And abuse of liberals by one's local church leader leaders can be as injurious and painful as abuse by these nearest relatives. Good intentions do not excuse or avoid culpability for that kind of abuse. Does anyone excuse sincere religious leaders who burned alleged witches or Catholics who tortured Protestants? Joseph Smith said that one who mistakenly abuses his priesthood authority will, quote, persecute the saints, close quote. <clears throat> the, um, Joseph Smith said our church leaders repeatedly have condemned all abuse. Most recently, Elder Curon said there is no place for any kind of abuse. Church leaders need more humility about so many mistakes to avoid driving more young people away from the church. Membership is declining in blue states per the latest statistical report on church membership in the USA. The mistreatment of liberals is sadly reflected in the fact that church membership is now only growing in extremely conservative red states. Church leaders have to lead and not persecute liberal members if the church is ever to grow again in blue states. So what do we do to cope with abusive leaders? I mean, if we are unlucky enough in the leadership lottery uh, to have an abusive leader in our congregation, what are the best means of coping? 
And uh, here are my ideas from my own uh, experience. The first thing is uh, going under the radar, being silent. Um, even liberals, including myself, are guilty of engaging in self-censorship and self-sacrifice by going along to get along and keeping silent in church meetings and discussions because spouting whales get harpooned. Elder Stephen Snow, an emeritus general authority and a Democrat, stated in his a 2019 interview about his career in the church that he carefully avoided any political discussion and was silent about his liberal political views with other church leaders. Uh, including his time as church historian. That kind of codependency relationship exists because of the higher value placed on the relationship and the institution than on honesty. This enabling behavior by historians and other liberals is just as wrong as family members, family members enabling substance abuse. Everyone bears some of the blame for the historical dishonesty perpetuated too long in a misguided effort to protect faith. Even the best of us struggles to be truly and totally honest in all our dealings. And hence the temple worthiness question now reads, are you striving to be honest in all your dealings? We all need to be better in uh, that kind of honesty and uh, facing up to the difficult questions of church history. So, Another approach is retreating into the wilderness. Um, retreat is often the best response to authoritarian regression and conflict. Standing your ground escalates conflict into a fight you cannot win when your adversary is a local church leader. One must pick their battles carefully and based on the circumstances and retreat, uh, based on the circumstances and retreat instead of engaging in losing battles. And I recognize this is somewhat inconsistent with my comments about being silent. I mean, in some cases, if it's going to be a losing battle, you, you, you really have to be silent uh, rather than just provoke, uh, you know, provoke um, disciplinary action that can result in your loss of membership and your privileges. Um, I've heard many stories of members moving to avoid abusive ward leaders with great long-term results. And that's actually my own personal experience. I've also seen many others attend a different ward without moving, but this is often less successful because the church does not fully facilitate uh, attending wards without moving one's residence. Uh, third idea, alternative service. Find ways to serve other than in church columns. I volunteer, you know, if, you, if you're being marginalized and you don't have a significant church calling, find something else. I, I was in that exact situation. I was asked to resign from the high council. And so I volunteered to serve on my local planning commission, which led to my election as mayor. I had a dream, actually, from teen days of becoming a political leader. And this was fulfilled in spades by my 15 years of, of uh, local government service. And I'm rewarded by seeing the fruits of this around my city all the time. Um, I also volunteered to serve on the local BSA board and eventually served as the president of the BSA council, culminating over 20 years of board service. And then, I, as I mentioned before, I went on a senior mission to the Pacific area. 
all of these service opportunities that I took allowed me to serve at a high level. And particularly on my senior mission, I was serving with area leadership, working, preparing legal reports on many projects of the presiding bishopric. And all these separated me from the abusive local church leaders. So the next idea is appealing to higher authority. Um, Local disciplinary action is often overturned on appeal. And this was my own experience. And I know of other successful appeals. My bishop, without warning, terminated my temple recommend a few years ago, which was a serious problem. In fact, it was right after I got back from my senior mission. And uh, so I appealed to the state president, who not surprisingly sided with the bishop based upon their close friendship and their shared extremist political and cultural views. I then made it clear to them in writing that I believe they were biased and I was appealing their actions and I wanted to appeal to the area presidency. Um, initially, they doubled down and accused me of apostasy and they threatened my membership. But to the state president's credit, he then involved his counselor in the process. At the meeting to present their evidence of my alleged apostasy, all they said amounted to their belief that I was too liberal and intellectual. That's all they had. Their evidence was only that I didn't agree with their extremist conservatism. The state presidency counselor was appalled, and he persuaded the state president and the bishop to immediately restore my temple recommend, terminate the proceedings, and grant my request to transfer my records to a new ward in another state based on the location of my second home. The counselor privately apologized to me for what happened, as did the temple president when he was informed of the situation. So, appeal and retreat often works, <laughs> better than standing your ground and getting in a fight that you just, you're not gonna win. So the next idea is forgiveness. Um, if you go through something like this, it's essential for maintaining your peace of mind and your emotional stability. And this often takes years of processing, just like forgiving serious domestic abuse of an ex-spouse or a parent. My own mother's example really help me choose to forgive and maintain my faith despite my mistreatment. She was introduced to the church by her boyfriend, who she married and who was my father. He admitted to violent domestic abuse that continued for 20 years until she divorced him. She never wavered in her faith despite all those years of abuse. And that set an example that really made a huge difference for me. So um, another idea is finding a support group. Everyone needs friends who are kindred spirits. Use your discernment to find a group of faithful but supportive friends who are committed to truth, honesty, and all the other values that are typical of more liberal members. Liberals are unquestionably the minority within the church today, but they are out there in sufficient numbers that you can find a circle of friends who share your values. And for those friends and family members who don't share your values, then you have to make a determination about the extent that they are ready, willing, and able to talk openly about areas of disagreement. And if, in some cases, you may make a good decision to maintain the relationship by 
going silent with them on sensitive subjects. Next idea is have a sense of humor. And this can be hard on something as uh, sensitive as, you know, being uh, called an apostate and told that you should be killed to cleanse the church. Uh, conservatives end up having to do all the undesirable church work. Think of it that way. Uh, being marginalized is your get-out-of-jail-free card from undesirable administrative callings. Um, have the attitude of the Mad Magazine character, Alfred E. Newman. Quote, what, me worry? <laughs> Close quote. Uh, I know I'm dating myself by that reference, but uh, seriously, one has no control over your callings, and therefore, one should not worry about who gets called, excepting only those who make the callings and must deal with the consequences when those called turned out to be duds or worse. It's their problem, not, not your problem. And similar to that is lowering your expectations. Uh, manage your anger and your depression uh, that way. Recognize and accept that leaders are as imperfect as most other members and will make mistakes, sometimes egregiously. Expecting them to be inspired and make perfect decisions and judgments is only going to feed anger and resentment that will poison you and escalate conflict with imperfect leaders and erode your faith based upon unrealistic expectations about leader performance. So um, now I'd like to talk about why should I stay? Why did I stay in the church, you know, facing serious abuse, having people actually tell me that I should not be in the church? You know, yeah. why, why should I stay? Um, if church leaders have been so often mistaken on major matters, uh, then should one stay in the church? I recognize that leaders have caused great trauma with some members to the point that mental health experts have recommended separation due to cumulative and adverse psychological effects of continuing trauma. And the fact that the church would be the source of such chronic stress and trauma is horrible to acknowledge. And it ought to be horrible to those who inflict it. I mean, they ought to be appalled if they really think about the psychological damage that they're doing to the people that they treat like enemies. It's, it's just flat appalling. But becoming a loner or a hermit is not a healthy solution either. God works with us perfect people despite our mistakes, and only by organization does the Lord's work get done. Lone Ranger spirituality is a cop-out for laziness, in my opinion, and where, where is the better alternative to the church? I have not found it, obviously. Moreover, I sincerely credit my life in the church for my spirituality and for the good character traits that I have developed. And many excellent church leaders and friends have helped me, helped shape me into who I am today. And I, I value that greatly. So lessons to be learned by my lifetime of being a uh, church liberal. Church leaders are just people who sometimes make serious mistakes and abuse their authority. And in this regard, I keep coming back to the quotation from George Q. Cannon about being too trusting of church leaders to always do what is right. And what he said is, quote, do not, brethren, put your trust in man, though he be a bishop, an apostle, or a president. If you do, they will fail you at some time or place, 
They will do wrong or seem to, and your support will be gone. But if we lean on God, he will never fail us. When men and women depend on God alone and trust in him alone, their faith will not be shaken if the highest in the church should step aside. They could still see that he is just and true, that truth is lovely in his sight. Um, and the pure in heart are dear to him. Perhaps it is his own design that faults and weaknesses should appear in high places in order that his saints may learn to trust in him and not to trust in any man or men. Therefore, my brethren and sisters, seek after the Holy Spirit and his unfailing testimony of God and his work upon the earth. Rest not until you know for yourselves that God has set his hand to redeem Israel and prepare a people for his coming. That's from 1891, George Q. Cannon. That's great. Yeah, it's a great quote, uh, I think, for people who have dealt with the mistakes of our leaders. Um, I, I feel fortunate. I really do feel fortunate that I had exceptionally inspiring church leaders during the first half of my life, in my formative years. But thereafter, my local leaders were equally disappointing. I suffered chronic conflict with extremely conservative local leaders for over 20 years because I am, in their opinion, quote, too liberal and intellectual, close quote. I feel they exhibited a Taliban-like intolerance and willful ignorance that was a trial of my faith and that required patience and understanding like Job. Uh, my moral courage and integrity were tested in responding to the action of these local leaders. And like Paul, I have felt to say, tongue-in-cheek, they did me much evil. May the Lord reward them according to their works. Close quote. I seriously pray for them, however, because they need mercy and forgiveness of their weaknesses and shortcomings, just like we all do. I admit there was fault on both sides, too. I, I made mistakes that contributed to these conflicts, particularly in showing my indignation towards these people. And also, I might say, in being naive and not realizing the, the briar patch I was stepping into, you know, at times saying things that I was rather stupid to say uh, if I really thought about the audience that I was speaking to. Um, sometimes you have to let the, the ignorant people win. <laughs> I think there's actually some truth to that. Um, but, but I certainly made my mistakes and uh, have learned my lessons. Um, and managing anger has always been easier said than done for me. And you really step into a trap with anger or indignation at abusive leaders because they immediately turn that around and use it against you and say, oh, you're contentious, you're angry, you've driven out the spirit, it's all your problem, and then you're done. So while these mistakes and tragedies have been disillusioning, they've not destroyed my faith in the church generally, and my faith has never been based upon leaders' character. My goal has ever been to associate myself with the best organizations, and I have uh, left those that I deemed inferior in the past. But staying in the church reflects my conclusion that there is a baby, a beautiful baby in the bathwater, 
and to use Juanita Brooks imagery, and the wisdom is distinguishing one from the other and not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, in an organization that explicitly teaches that the highest priorities are to love God and love all God's children, are we as church members going to pay lip service to our priorities while participating in a cultural war within the church that mirrors the political and cultural war outside the church right now? Is that what we want? Are we going to continue operating in a manner where a substantial percentage of the membership must engage in dishonesty to maintain their membership out of fear of authoritarian and extremist leaders who are oblivious to the gap between their views and the views of many of their members? Are we going to allow the demonization of devoted members who only their only crime is being a liberal? Um, are we going to mimic the intolerance of Protestant and Islamic fundamentalism? I, I hope not. I hope, pray not. Um, Gene, on behalf of our listeners, thank you. Um, this is an unusually good podcast. Um, perhaps for some of our listeners, there were things that were a little triggering, but I think part of growing and learning and um, becoming Zion is to process things that might be difficult to hear and cause me to look inward and say, Lord, is it I, and how can I do better? There's a lot of honest pain and trauma in your life story. There's a lot of grace um, also to leaders in your life. There's a grounding in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sustained you. Um, you know, you're a pretty seasoned guy at 70, uh, real estate attorney, mayor. Um, the missions you've served. So you speak with a lot of credibility and it's a very helpful perspective. It's the long view of this road. Many younger Latter-day Saints are on the short road, you know, recognizing their political ideology and the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to navigate that. So the advice you gave for them is very helpful. A um, couple questions as I wrote down is, and I don't think you inferred this, but is a little is a conservative local leader by definition then abusive? Or have you've had conservative local leaders that have that you have not felt abuse from? I have had conservative leaders who have been great to work with and who have been willing to engage and um see the value that I had to bring, you know, to the church and, and were uh, tolerant. And so, yeah, I, I definitely don't want to equate um, conservatism with abusive leadership. And that, that, that is definitely not my point. And the, well, you know, I think the problem comes when conservatism lurches over to extremism. Elder Oaks criticized Elder Benson, along with you know, most other general authorities uh, regarding his politics, by saying that Elder Benson has the bad habit of labeling an, a, anyone an enemy and an apostate and a communist sympathizer that disagrees with him on anything. And that was really true. You know, President Benson accused Dwight Eisenhower of being a communist sympathizer. And that's that kind of extremism where a leader 
view someone as an enemy because they're liberal. That's when they become abusive because they start treating that person like an enemy. They they marginalize them. For example, the 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 bishop and stake president that came after my membership and tried to take my recommend away, they 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 put me in a calling as the assistant Weeblow's Den leader. And they admitted later that that was intentionally because they were marginalizing me because I was a, a you know I was an evil liberal you know I was this dangerous they could they said they could not trust me you know where I've I've been in bishoprics uh, I've been on the high council I've I've been the young men's president I've taught seminary I mean I've been through you know all kinds of callings and you've just but come these back leaders thought and- all I was worthy of was like assistant den leader um, you know, that's abusive. To me, that's abusive. Because they weren't doing that so much out of inspiration that I was, you know, this was really the right, you know, good calling for me. They were doing it. They they admitted to me. They did it because they thought I was dangerous and untrustworthy as a liberal. Um, I appreciate you sharing those stories and just how that was able to be resolved. Um, I think that was a good Talk a good example. Talk about, um, I don't think you're asking conservative leaders to become liberal to be able to support liberal members, um, just like you weren't saying all conservative leaders are abusive. But for conservative leaders listening who want to stay in their current political party, talk more about that are really coming from a place of love and saying, okay. I'm with you, Gene. I want to do a better job in this space. Help me know what I can do to help liberal members of my ward feel needed and contributing and that I support them. And I'm not trying to change them, but I actually believe I go back to good ship Zion or old ship Zion that Brigham Young talked about. And the, my feeling is, is that ship to really work the way it's supposed to work needs liberal and conservative members. We're stronger with both. Right. You know, one of the things that I learned on my first mission was that investigators can be reached by different kinds of missionaries. Like there's certain investigators that can be reached by one missionary, but another missionary would just turn them off completely. And it's the same way in the church, like with the perfecting of the saints. Um, you, um, It's like with the members, um, there, there are things that can be achieved by people who are liberal that just can't be achieved by those who are conservative. It's like diversity makes us stronger. And, and a, a wise conservative leader will recognize that it, honoring diversity will actually make his ward stronger. That if we try to um, purify the church and cleanse it by marginalizing anybody that's different than, you know, that's not a political conservative or a cultural conservative, that we are actually going to weaken the church and and there will be people in the congregation. I mean, for example, if you get somebody in the congregation that is somewhat liberal and is dealing with difficult church questions, they may respond way more positively to someone that's more liberal than they would to an authoritarian. Um, Elder Ballard recently said 
that the day when you a, a leader can pat a youth on the head and say, don't worry about your difficult questions, the gospel's true, just put those questions away and forget about them, that's gone. You know, that that's long gone. I When I um, was released as gospel doctrine teacher because of my unorthodox liberal ways, I was called to teach the teenagers, you know, like the 16-year-olds. And the mother of one of those told me multiple times that her son said I was the best teacher that he ever had his entire life in the church. And she said that really meant a lot to me as his mother. I know that that was because he was similar to me in being intellectual and liberal and you know, having questions that he wanted to discuss that I could discuss with him that, you know, like a fundamentalist extremist conservative would have just insulted him and, and completely turned him off. I love that. Um, I love you starting with different missionaries reach different people and that um, the missionary program does bring different spiritual gifts to bring people to gather Israel. We talk about gathering Israel a lot, and we often think as an unaided awareness that family praying for the missionaries to knock at the door. But to me, gathering Israel includes our own congregation. And there are probably some exceptions where a congregation is predominantly liberal and a conservative may be listening and saying, hey, wait a second, I feel all the same things you feel. Um, but I think the majority of the situation is where congregations are conservative and a liberal would feel the minority position. But either way, I think gathering of Israel is what you said, is bringing everybody's talents together. Um, we're stronger in our diversity. Right. Um, Absolutely. And and the, what conservatives have to do is to try and restrain and overcome the tendency to believe that every liberal, liberal is a wolf in sheep's clothing that's trying to destroy the faith of other members. Because that's that's the attitude that I got from some of them and exactly why they said, well, we're not you know, we're not going to put you into a calling of trust because we think you're just trying to destroy faith. In fact, I, you know. I spent the last few decades working as hard as I could to try and preserve the faith of my own children, their friends, and other youth in my ward, and knocking myself out to do that, and yet was accused by these local leaders that came after my membership that I was secretly, what I was doing with all my efforts was really a sort of secret effort to destroy people's faith. That's, That's you know, it's like their view was the complete exact opposite of what I've really been trying to do. And that's heartbreaking. And here you yeah. just come back from serving a senior mission. You have a testimony and work in the temple. Um we just get small when we um when we go down this road. And I you know, sameness used to mean that everybody in our congregations was same political party, same everything. But to me, Zion is is diversity. I look at organizations that are succeeding in a secular world, and they're taking the the different talents that people have and saying, we're better off with your authentic self and your authentic talents. 
you've always been focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing people to Christ. So it's not like I can see a backstory where you're actually not committed to the gospel. Um, you've been serving for five years, five decades or so. Um, I also recognize that younger listeners may not have the long view of this that you do and have the, the standing and the privilege that you've had to get an audience with your bishop and stake president and have sort of the history of a committed Latter-day Saint to kind of navigate that. And so I think of younger people that, and I know you're not meant to trigger them in any way, but it just causes all, both Gene and I, I think that the there's people that feel the way Gene do and have the same experiences, but don't have the chance for an appeal or for an equal sort of standing or a sympathetic stick president counselor. So I think we as local, I'm not a local leader right now in my current calling, um, but I think we need to work. I am a ward member and I think we need to work really hard to create a feeling of belonging and acceptance. And if we're conservative, I think we need to, in our language and in our, the way we talk to create a feeling that I'm safe for liberals and conservatives. I'm I'm safe for straight and gay. I'm safe for um, people that are feminist or not feminists. I'm safe for all the different viewpoints that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you used a couple words that I think can be difficult at times when we're trying to purify or cleanse. Um, I don't think we're called to be sifters, Gene. I think you know that. I think we're called to be gatherers. Um, and um, you've had a fair amount of sifting sent your way. And I'm sorry for that. It's been incredibly painful. And respect for you for navigating that and even serving a senior mission and serving as a mayor and all the things you've done. But listeners, we're called to be gatherers. And um, let's create space in Good Chip Zion for... Um, our liberal friends. I do love Elder Oaks's most recent talk where he talked about you can be a committed Latter-day Saint and hold positions in either political party, and you can even change your mind about your political party. I think as I listen to Elder Oaks in particular, I sense a desire to um, bring us together in our political differences under the umbrella of the church. I love, you have a long view here. I love how you pointed out President Nelson is completely comfortable with science and the gospel. I kind of grew up not aware that that was ever different, but you pointed out that was different, reminding me that we really had a conflict there. And so I look at where the church is growing and maturing and recognize we don't have a conflict with the civil rights movement. <laughs> we don't have a co conflict with science. Um, we And some of these other areas, we do have a conflict. Maybe we can learn we don't have a conflict. Um, and maybe the fear-based narratives that sometimes political parties bring into our mind, we can get past those fear-based narratives. Um, certainly communism was a big one in, you know, in an earlier generation. We don't sort of get into that one as much. Socialism could be one, but I think fact-based discussions about the difference in our political parties versus fear-based narratives, um, you know, just as common enemy intimacy as the Thing that Bernay Brown taught, if the bond we share is simply we hate the same group of people, the intimacy experience is intense and an easy way to disrage your outrage and pain. It's not fuel for real connection. So 
we that's that's been the part of the divicity that has been disappointing to both of us. I'm speaking for you, Gene, but I think you feel the same way. So yeah, now, completely agree. I've given you my five. <laughs> Tell our we're kind of at the hour mark, but I'd love you to kind of have make sure you share any last closing thoughts or hopes for the future, or if you want to talk directly to millennial or Gen Z. Um, um, liberals that want to figure out a way to stay in the church actually want to make this work, but not sure they can. Well, I certainly want to um, second your your statement that there's been a lot of progress made. Uh, you know, over the nearly 70 years that I've been a church member, you know, I've lived through uh, times when, um, you know, there's been very serious problems, but in, over the long view, tremendous progress has been made. And and uh, I think the church is definitely uh, generally um, making significant progress on most of these issues. I, I don't think, you know, there's very many people, at least on the liberal side, would feel like we've arrived. You know, I think we still have a long ways to go. And that's, uh, I think, uh, one of the things that um, has created some of my conflict in the past is, is you know, leaders who feel like believing that there's still got to be further light knowledge and further changes and progress and, you know, that the restoration is continuing. For some people, that's really, they don't like that. They really resist it. But I am hopeful from everything I've seen in my lifetime, that further light and knowledge will be revealed, that progress will continue, and that the church will continue to be at the um, at the forefront in leading the way. You know, in some areas in the past, we the church hasn't been in the forefront, but I think increasingly the church is taking a, a role where it is actually leading the way in the right direction that's encouraging to me and gives me lots of hope for the future. I love that. Talk to younger people. You've done that already, but just talk to, you know, somebody that says, yeah, Gene, I, I really have a fundamental testimony of the gospel. I'm liberal. I'm a feminist. Um, and I want to kind of make this work, but it's hard. Just talk to that person you already have, but talk directly to them. Well, it is hard, and I guess what I would compare it to is in science. Now, this is dangerous for a lawyer, you know, that's not a scientist. But I took physics when I was in college uh, just to challenge myself. It's the hardest class I ever took. But one of the things that you learn about physics is that they, they have not figured out a unified theory of everything in physics. And actually, when you look at the different branches of physics, the results seem completely contradictory in certain cases. And it's just kind of crazy and chaotic and doesn't seem to make sense in certain respects. And the harder they try and the, like, the more we learn and discover, the crazier things sometimes seem. To me, that's a little bit like the way it is in the church, where you, um, we, as a, as a liberal in the church where you have this dissonance and these contradictions and resistance and problems, um, it's like 
gaining realistic expectations. You have to realistically understand that all of these things and all these problems and difficulties and mistakes are, that's the way the world is. That's the way life is. And you're not going to, you are not going to find, in my opinion, you will not find a better organization out there um, that is superior to the church in terms of dealing with these things. And so, um, you know, when we're young, we're all idealistic and we want everything to make sense. We want to figure everything out and, um, you know, build a utopia. And of course, Mormonism in its beginning was a utopian, radical sort of religion. Unfortunately, lots of people have forgotten that, but it really had this idealistic, young, you know, uh, desire to radically change religion in ways that would be positive and progressive. And that's still happening. That hasn't died out. That's still there. And, and liberals in the church, if they are patient and keep working for progress, it will come and things will get better and things will improve. And we will, uh, you know, we will overcome problems that we've had in the past. That's what history shows. I was a history major undergrad. And, you know, I view myself as kind of a historian uh, by hobby, you know, if not by profession. And history teaches me that um, that this is the way the world works. And that realistically, there, you know, we're always going to be dealing with these problems, but progress will come. I am not a believer in the idea that there's, uh, you know, that we're doomed and that, you know, we're never going to really progress and solve problems. I think we have. I, I really am a believer that we will, if we, if we stay and we work and we're faithful, that we will make progress. And I, I've, I mean, in my senior mission that I went to the Pacific area, for example, I had things happen there that were truly miraculous. And I solved problems that I know I was sent there because I could solve them and I could cause progress in the church. We had a property in Papua New Guinea that the legal department had been trying to solve a very serious legal problem for 15 years and nobody was able to solve it. And I went there and I solved it. That's cool. And it was I mean, I, it's not because I'm the world's greatest lawyer or anything. It was because the Lord sent me because I happen to have the right talents and the right makeup and the right personality. And a lot of it just came down to working with these corrupt officials in Papua New Guinea. But I did it. I actually did. And that was I I was so amazed. But it really was a testimony to me that the Lord could use me to make progress you know, where, you know, he put me in the right place at the right time that I could do something really cool. I love that. And I love that specific story. And, you know, if you feel like you're on your way out of the church, that's one thing, but a lot of listeners are trying to make it work um, and need new tools and perspective. And some of us are also trying to develop better tools to help other people stay I've sometimes felt the tools to bring somebody into the church are different tools than to keep somebody in the church. Um, and you've given a lot of tools in this podcast, how to navigate 
um, leaders that have said things that we don't say anymore to sort of talk about their not being, you know, perfect in a thoughtful and faithful way, which I think is a more sustainable approach going forward is to support, support and sustain our leaders, which obviously you've done. You've served a mission and also recognize, and you did never once say, I know better or I could do better. You just acknowledged things that, you know, you were uncomfortable with and felt like were not accurate. And time has sort of shared that has kind of helped us understand that that's true. So anyway, um, like all these podcast listeners, if there's just take what's helpful to you. We present a lot of stories. I wrote some things down here that George Q. Cannon quote was priceless because I love the way it builds a testimony based on our heavenly parents and the restored gospel and our leaders are a means to that or not the end. And they can let us down. I've been a leader. I've probably let people down. Um, and I think our leaders would be nervous about the testimony being based on them. But culturally, Sometimes we put our leaders in a place that I don't think they want to be. <laughs> um, and you helped us see some of that. And then when leaders let people down, either ourselves or others, that can break faith. And so this is a more sustainable approach. And so Gene Grant from Oregon, my friend, thank you for being on the podcast. And just thanks for your life and the good that you've done in so many different areas. And um, on behalf of a bunch of our listeners, and I think, your life story helps us all just consider how we can serve and add value in our circles of influence. So this is Gene Grant and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.